concentrate on those, those basic foundational truths of the Scripture uh, that help us stand uh, in life. And that's, that's what the Bible uh, teaches us. Let me take you right away into the Gospel of uh, Matthew in the seventh chapter and show you how significant it is that we take these weeks and, and you need to be here for these weeks. If you go to Matthew, uh, Matthew 7, as we lay the foundation here today, uh, of course we could drop and give me 20 until we get there. But uh, if you go ahead and if you get to uh, Matthew uh, 7, it's uh, Jesus experiencing uh, some time where he's, uh, there it is, where he's talking uh, with uh, those who would follow him. And uh, this, this is so easy to unpack. You're going to unpack this scripture this morning, okay? You ready to do some work? This will be your 20 right here. Um, start out right away. He says, uh, anyone who hears and obeys these teachings of mine is like a wise person who built a house on solid rock. Let's stop there for a minute. Now, Jesus is describing a wise person. Anybody in the house want to be a wise person? I mean, you want to live a smart life, right? Yeah, bands over there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you want to live a smart life, right? You want to live with wisdom and understanding. You want your life to, to stand for something and be different than everybody else in the world. I mean, you want your life to just be smart and wise and, and make a difference and have meaning and have purpose. All Smart, wise life. He just told you in this verse, in one verse, he just told you what you need to do to have a smart life, to have a wise life. He says you need to do uh, two things. Look at the verse again. Here's what a wise person does. Did you unpack it and see what the two things are? Your first response is probably going to be, no, wait a minute, it's one thing. You need to build your, build your life on, or your house on, a rock, right? That's what he's saying. He says, wise people build their house on a rock. Who in the house doesn't know that, right? I mean, if you're going to build a house, you build a house on a rock. You build it on a solid foundation. Everybody knows that. What he's telling you is the solid foundation to life, to a wise life, is doing two things. And those two things are in the beginning of the verse. You see what it says? Anyone who does what? Hears and obeys these teachings of mine. What is a wise person building their life on? Two things. They're listening and they're doing the teachings of Jesus. That's the key to wisdom. That's the key to a wise life. That's the key to having a life that exceeds everybody else in the world, that stands there and is, is brilliant. Now he says you need to live a wise life because of the next verse. Look what he says, 25. Rain poured down, rivers flooded, and winds beat against that house, but it did not fall because it was built on solid rock. He just told you he understands your life. He understands that as you go through life, there are going to be times that are going to be difficult. The wind's going to blow. The rains are going to come. The floodwaters are going to rise. Things are going to challenge you. Life is not always easy because we live in a broken world, and it gets challenging and difficult. He understands that. But he's saying to you, look, if you want a wise life that overcomes those challenges, if you want a wise life that's able to withstand all that the wind can throw against it, all the floodwaters that can rise up, if you want a wise life that can take the beating that the world is going to throw against you, you need this solid foundation. You need the rock. And the rock is hear and obey his teachings. Isn't that awesome? He just gave you an incredible truth, didn't he? If you want to have that life that stands strong and overcomes, you hear and obey the teaching. Now he contrasts that for you here to show what happens if you don't do those two things. 
Anyone who hears my teachings and doesn't obey them is like a foolish person. Any volunteers? And not many of us want to step out on that one and say, yeah, let me be the fool. <laughs> no, we want to be the wise guy. We want to be the wise person. So he's saying, look, foolish people do this. Foolish people don't listen to what I have to say. And that's like building your house on sand. And everybody knows you don't build the house on sand. Why? Well, because when the rain pours and the rivers flood, the winds blow, it beat against the house, and finally it will crash. He's saying, look, the winds are going to blow. Notice in both of those verses, in uh, 27 and 25, the rain still came and the flood water still went up and the wind still blew. That's the constant. The question is, how do you respond in life to that reality? Wise people? They follow the truth, the foundational truth. Foolish people. Foolish people ignore that truth and follow something else. And the result is a foolish life that is struggle. It is a foolish life that crashes, that gets torn apart. What we're going to talk about in these weeks is absolutely vital for each one of us because it is the truth that allows us to stand. Now, what's interesting in, in this verse is not only this teaching that he gives here, but look what happens next. If you go to uh, verse uh, 28, when Jesus finished speaking, the crowds were surprised at his teaching. He taught them like someone with authority and not like their teachers of the law of Moses. This was so fascinating. We usually kind of gloss over this part of the experience, this part of the verse, right? How those people respond to him? Well, they were or surprised. Well, what surprised them? Well, what surprised them was his teachings came with such foundational authority. Unlike anybody else's teachings, his teachings came with foundational authority. That's what we need to grab. You see, the things we're going to talk about over these weeks are not things that you get to decide whether you like them or don't like them. They're not things that you get to decide whether you want to do them or don't want to do them. They're not things that you get to decide whether they're right or whether they're wrong. They are foundational truths. And those foundational truths form and shape us. We don't form and shape them. You get the difference? It's a big one. Because you see, out there in the world, it goes the other way around. See, out there in the world, there's the false teachings that say you are in charge, and you get to decide what you want to believe or what you don't want to believe. Out there in the world, there is the false teachings that says you get to decide what's true and what isn't true. What amazed these folks was Jesus taught with authority. His word is simply the authority. His word is the truth. And that's what shapes us. Okay, there's our 20. Now, if you're ready to dive in, today we're going to dive in then and start looking at one of the foundational uh, truths of, uh, of, our, of our faith. And that is simply, what do Christians believe about the nature of God? What do we understand about the nature of God? And right away, right away as we jump into this, we're going to run into some wind and some rain and uh, some flooding because out there in the world there are a lot of people with opinions about what God ought to be 
You know, there's a lot of mistaken understanding out there about what God really is like. You know, and we create images, like we, we make God into kind of this cosmic policeman who is unleashing his wrath wherever he wants to. Or we make God into our own personal butler who's just there to do our bidding, however we want it done. Or we make God into kind of the Mr. Fix-It God. So we kind of do life the way we want to do life until we get into trouble, and then we call Mr. Fix-It to come and fix it, right? Um, or we just leave God distant and off somewhere and kind of some gentle old grandfatherly type figure who really doesn't have any significance. Or my personal favorite that's out there in the world right now is, well, besides all that, you know, it's one God, many names. So you can just pick whatever name you want and that's okay. Well, here's the problem. The problem is Deuteronomy 6. And Deuteronomy 6 says... Listen, Israel. Now, did you notice the grammatical thing right there? What's behind the word Israel? Come on, grammarians. Exclamation point, right? Now, that means this is with emphasis. This is being said with, with an emphatic kind of tone of voice, right? Listen, you guys. It's like, you know, that drill sergeant. You, ever, you know the drill sergeant? I mean, when the drill sergeant says something, you hip too, hey? It's that kind of, it's basic training. And he's saying, listen, you got to listen up on this one. Pay attention now. Listen, this is the way it is. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the only true God. What's the grammatical thing there? Exclamation point. You think he's emphatic about this? Absolutely. Why is he emphatic? Because he knows. The Deuteronomist knows that the world is going to try to convince you about all this other stuff. It's going to try to draw you into a life experience that says, well, you know, take your pick about who you want to worship. Take your pick about who you want to follow. Take your pick about how you want God to be. The Deuteronomist says very clearly, no, you've got to understand this. Listen emphatically, our Lord is one. That's it. There is one God. And we know his name. See, this is the truth, the foundational truth that set Israel apart from all the other nations of its, of, uh, of its time. When all the other, when the Romans and all those guys were just going to whatever God they wanted to go to, whatever was convenient, whatever was comfortable, Israel stood up in the face of all the nations and said, No, no, you got it wrong. There is one God, and we, we know his name. It's Yahweh. That's it. There is one God and only one God, and that's it, and that's who we serve. You see, this is a basic foundational statement of faith. And that basic statement of faith says there is one God, and that God gets to be who he is. We don't get to tell him who he needs to be. We don't get to decide what God ought to be like. We don't get to decide, well, we like this part of God, but we don't like that part of God, so we're only going to pay attention to this part. We don't get to shape, form, and fashion God into the God we want Him to be. God is God. And God shapes us. God fashions us. And all of our life is consumed with the attention of one God and no one else. We don't live for bigger houses, faster cars. We don't live for greater bank accounts. 
We don't live for all the values of this world. We live captured by God, by one God, and that's whom we serve. It is simply a foundational truth. And when you get that, you see it's this foundational truth that says, you know what, I know God. I know God. I know the one true God of the universe, the one true God of all time. I know his name. When you get that, when the winds come, when the rain blows, when the floodwaters rise, you can stand. Why? You know who's in charge. You know God. You can stand in that faith that says, look, I don't care what the world throws against me because I know God. I know the way God is. Now, as we go into the scripture and we try to understand God, the, the challenge for us is that we don't get to decide who God is. God gets to show us who he is, right? God gets to reveal, reveal to us God's own nature. So the best we can do is go into the scripture and start looking at the activity of God in the world and, and how God has shown himself uh, to us. It's, uh, we've got to be careful. It's kind of like the... Uh, the, uh, the old story of the, uh, the five uh, blind fellows who were uh, gathered together and walking on the road and they ran into an elephant. You know the old story? They ran into an elephant. And remember, they're, they're uh, visually impaired fellows. And uh, so they approached the elephant and the first blind man felt the elephant's trunk. And uh, right away he says, oh, I can tell you what an elephant is like. It's like a large snake, wriggly, and has strong muscles. And, of course, the second guy went to a different part of the element, uh, elephant, felt his tusks, and said, no, you got it wrong. It's nothing like a snake. An elephant is like a smooth, sharp-pointed spear. Then, of course, the third guy felt another part of the elephant, um, his leg, and he disagreed with the other two and said, no, you both are wrong. Uh, an elephant is like a trunk of a tree, thick and solid. And the fourth guy felt the tail, and of course he argued with the other guys and said, you must all be out of your minds. An elephant is like a snake. It's not like a snake or a spear or a tree trunk. It's much smaller than those things. An elephant you can hold in your hand. It's like a rope. And finally, the fifth guy felt the side of the elephant, his body, and said, you're all wrong. An elephant is like a brick wall, flat and immovable. Now, were they all experiencing the elephant? Absolutely. They were all experiencing the elephant, the elephant, but they never stepped back to see the whole of the elephant. That's the way it is for us as we experience God. You see, God shows us what God is like, but he shows us the different nature, the different elements of what God is like. And you need times in your life when you step back and you look at God's activity and you say, okay, now I get the complete picture of what God is like. We can only develop that picture as we look at the experience of God in time as he's worked with his people. You ready to go? Let's try to figure out what God is like. And we're never going to be able to grab the whole totality of God, but give you some insight into this one God and what God is like. First, we go to one of our favorite places in Scripture. We've been there before, Psalm 23, right? You go to uh, Psalm 23. Uh, and the psalmist uh, describes God with an image uh, of his time. Uh, and you know how Psalm 23 starts, even before it gets up on the screen, right? Uh, what's the image that the, uh, the psalmist used? He says, well, God is like a shepherd, right? God is like a shepherd. You, O Lord, are my, you can say it, shepherd, you bet, right? So right there, 
what the psalmist is trying to do is tell us, look, this is what God's like. God is like a shepherd. Now, what's interesting, we went to this, this verse, what, a couple of three weeks ago. And remember, I showed you it was in the present tense. This is what God is doing now. Now look at this verse a little bit differently. I highlighted for you the number of times you see the word you. Right? And in each time, you is describing the activity of God. How active is God? Holy cow. You is all over, isn't it? You is all over. I mean, God's activity is incredible when he's acting as a shepherd. This means God is not some distant God. God is a very personal God, and God is very active in the life of his people. The psalmist is saying, God, you're incredible. You do this, and you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and you do this. Notice in all of those verses, you have to get to verse 4 before you find anything that we do. You see that? There's only one verse that describes anything that we do. And what do we do? Well, we walk through the valleys as dark as death, but we won't be afraid. Why? Because we know who God is. We've got the foundational truth. We can stand when the winds blow and the rains come and the floods rise and the dark valleys are there. The psalmist is telling us how this foundational, how God works because of the nature of God. We can stand even in the darkest times. Not because of who we are, but because of who God is. Because God is like a shepherd. Those of you who are here last week and you heard the witnesses from Team Challenge, did, did you hear that from them? I mean, wasn't that awesome? I mean, the dark valleys that some of those folks faced, and their answer was always the same, right? It wasn't what they did. It was all about what God did by the very nature of God working in their life. He is like a shepherd. Or we can go to Exodus uh, 3. If we go to Exodus 3, we can see another picture of God's activity for us. And this is when his people were down there uh, in Egypt. And in Exodus 3, it talks about God being more like uh, an overseer. That is, that God is aware of what's going on in your life. It says, the Lord said, I have seen how my people are suffering as slaves in Egypt. I have heard them beg for my help because of the way they are being mistreated. I feel sorry for them, and I have come down to rescue them uh, from the Egyptians. So what is God doing? Well, God is taking note of everything that's going on in his people's lives. Because of God's nature, God doesn't miss one moment of your life. Isn't that awesome? There's not one thing that happens. There's not one experience that goes on. There's not one thought. There's not one action. There's not one experience in your life that God isn't taking note of. God is intimately aware of everything that encompasses your days and your nights. Even when you sleep, God is still aware. God, by his nature, is so intimately involved in your life that he doesn't want to miss a single moment of your life. We can go into the New Testament, and it says where the hairs on our heads are numbered, right? Now, for some of us, that's pretty easy, but still, that's a pretty big task. That's pretty intimate, isn't it? It is the nature of God. It's who God is. You see, God is not only a shepherd, but God, by his nature, is someone who wants to be intimately involved in everything that's going on in your life. And because he is who he is, not only does he want to be aware of what's going on in your life, but he wants to speak 
into your life. That's the next element of God, is that God is like that gentle voice. And we get this from the experience with uh, Elijah in 1 Kings uh, 19. Uh, and Elijah is on the run. Things are going well for him. And God says, Elijah, look, i, I got to speak with you. And so he says, come out of the cave so I can speak with you. And it says, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. So God is going to get real close and real intimate with Elijah. It says that a great and powerful wind tore, to the, tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Now notice all these tremendous things that are taking place, powerful things. And each time it comes to the same conclusion, no, that's, that's not God. No, that's not God. Now we get to the next one. And it says, and after the fire came a gentle whisper. And Elijah heard it, and he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? See, God wants to speak into Elijah's life. He knows what's going on in Elijah's life. He cares as a shepherd would care about what's going on in Elijah's life. And now he wants to speak into that life. This is the nature of God. God wants to care for you as a shepherd. God knows what's going on in your life. And God wants to speak into your life, into the experience of whatever it is you're going through. And he can speak with that small, simple voice. You know, God doesn't reach you with bolts of lightning and earthquake. God reaches you with that simple, gentle, caring voice. All right, so now we got a pretty good picture of part of God. Caring, compassionate, involved, all this. Now flip over to the other side, and let's get a broader picture of the elephant. The next one is from the Psalms to understand how incredibly majestic God is. You see, the God we're talking about is, is not some old grandfatherly God. We're talking about an incredible God. That's what the psalmist understands. He says, O Lord, our Lord. Yeah, kind of similar, right? O Lord, our Lord. Our Lord is one God. O Lord, our Lord. The God we're talking about here. How majestic is your name in all the earth? Exclamation point. You have set... Uh, you have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is it? Uh, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? The psalmist understands what we just learned about God, how intimate God is involved in life, right? And now he's stepping back and saying, but God... You're so awesome. How could you be so incredibly powerful and so incredibly awesome to create the sun, the moon, the stars, the universe? How could you be such an incredible God who can knit together the universe and even knit together our bodies so they work so incredible? How could a God so awesome and incredible yet be so concerned about the smallest thing in my life? But that's the nature of God. That's who God is. You see, the God that is concerned about your life and everything that's going on is the God who is in charge of the entire universe. 
He's the one that makes the sun come up every day and the moon come out every night. He is the God who is more powerful than anything that ever has been. He is such an incredible, awesome God. How about you? But I like knowing that God. I like knowing that's the God who's in charge of my life. The God who controls the universe is the one every day who is willing to walk with me and speak into my life. I can stand on that. When the winds come, when the rains come, when the floodwaters rise, I can stand because I know the God of the universe and He cares about my life. See how awesome God is? It is the nature of God that allows us to stand. I'll give you just a few more. Because that is the nature of God, the psalmist would have us understand that God then becomes our fortress. That God is a God who is willing to be that rock and that fortress in our life. He is the one that we build our life on so we can stand. Psalm uh, 9. The poor can run to you because you are a fortress in the times of trouble. Now notice Psalm 18, how many different images he gives that are similar. You are my rock, my fortress, my protector, the rock where I am safe, my shield, my powerful weapon, and the place of my shelter. What did Jesus say you need to build your life on? A rock, which is the truth of who God is. Isn't that awesome? You see, we can stand in life because God is exactly who God says He is. We can stand in life because God is who God is, not who we choose Him to be. We can stand in life because God is exactly who God is. Now, what's even more awesome, this God who is who God is, who is our fortress and our rock and we can stand because of Him, who is intimately involved... This incredible God is not done with our lives yet. He is the God who not only created the universe, but continues to create in our lives. This is his nature. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And he's not done yet. He's not done yet. You see, it is the nature of God that says, Look, he is not done with your life. Wherever your life is right now, that's awesome. That's great because God, your shepherd, cares about you. And God, the overseer, is taking, taking note of everything going on in your life. And God is willing to give direction and whisper into your life. Remember, he is the majestic God who is in charge of everything. You're rocking your solid foundation. And this God, he is not done creating in your life. While you're asleep tonight, he's going to be working in creating your tomorrow. Isn't that awesome? It is the nature of God. It is the nature of God that says, look, God has something more in your life. And how can he do this? And why does he do it? Because it's his nature. It's who he is. Because ultimately we know from the scriptures, God is love. Scripture just said it emphatically. 1 John uh, 4 says it really, uh, really emphatically. And let's say the first uh, phrase together. Ready? Verse 8 says what? God is Wow, huh? It's that simple. You see, we can stand on that when the floods, waters rise, when the rains come, the winds blow. We stand on the nature of God. And at the essence of that nature is His incredible love for you. And John wants you to understand you cannot miss how much He loves you. You can't miss it. 
Because all you have to do is look at Jesus and look what he was willing to do for you. God is love. Anyone who doesn't love others has never known him. God showed his love for us when he sent his only son into the world to give us life. Real love isn't our love for God, but it's his love for us. God sent his son to be sacrificed by which our sins are forgiven. Dear friends, since God loves us this much, we must love each other. What's the foundation? It is the nature of God to love you. And he showed that to you in person in Jesus Christ because he was willing to lay down his life. He was ready to give up everything so that you can have a new tomorrow. See, you can stand on that. You can stand and say, listen, listen, there is one God, and I know his name, and he knows me. Listen, there is one God. He watches over my life. Listen, there is one God, and he speaks to me. He speaks direction to my life. Listen, this God is so awesome. There is nothing like this God. He's my rock and my fortress. And this God, this God loves me so much that he would give his own precious son. When the rains come and the floods rise, you can stand because of who God is. I want to end today by just letting you listen to the psalmist one more time and just take in the words of Psalm 139 and listen how intimate God is uh, in your life. Watch the screen if you would. Sit back. Uh, close your eyes if you're comfortable. And uh, just take in, drink in uh, the words of the nature of this God. Oh Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. I'm an open book to you. Even from a distance, you know what I'm thinking. You chart the path ahead of me and tell me where to stop and rest. You know what I'm going to say before I start the first sentence. You both precede and follow me. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I can't take it all in. I can never escape your spirit. Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to the place of the dead and make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I ride on the wings of the morning and settle in the far side of the sea, you'd find me in a minute. You're already there, waiting. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night. But even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Your workmanship is wonderful. Your creation breathtaking, body and soul marvelously made. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. You know me inside and out. You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made bit by bit. You saw me before I was born. You watched me grow from conception to birth. All the stages of my life were spread out before you. How precious are your thoughts about me? They are innumerable. I'll never comprehend them. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up in the morning, you're still with me. Investigate my life, God. 
find out everything about me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Cross-examine and test me. Get a clear picture 